Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, Hit Parade listeners. What you're about to hear is part one of this episode. Part two will arrive in your podcast feed at the end of the month. Would you like to hear this episode all at once the day it drops? Sign up for Slate Plus. It supports not only this show, but all of Slate's acclaimed journalism and podcasts. Just go to slate.com slash hitparadeplus. You'll get to hear every Hit Parade episode in full the day it arrives. Plus, Hit Parade The Bridge, our bonus episodes, with guest interviews, deeper dives on our episode topics, and pop chart trivia. Once again, to join, that's slate.com slash hitparadeplus. Thanks. And now, please enjoy part one of this Hit Parade episode. Welcome to Hit Parade, a podcast of pop chart history from Slate Magazine about the hits from coast to coast. I'm Chris Malanfi, chart analyst, pop critic, and writer of Slate's Why Is This Song Number One series. On today's show, 37 years ago, in the summer of 1985, British art rock goddess Kate Bush issued the first single from what would become her best-selling studio album, Hounds of Love. The song, a cross between an intimate meditation and a thunderous anthem, was called Running Up That Hill. In a career that had already generated a string of hit singles and albums in her UK homeland since the late 70s, Bush had, as of 85, yet to score a major pop hit in America. This song, whose full title was Running Up That Hill, parentheses, A Deal With God, would finally change that. By the fall of that year, it would crack the top 40 on Billboard's Hot 100. However, even a song as powerful as this one could only do so much to break Kate Bush in the U.S., Running Up That Hill topped out at number 30 on the chart by November 85, unable to get past current hits by the likes of Dire Straits, Sting, and The Cars. But as I speak in June 2022, Running Up That Hill is back on the Hot 100, only this time it's doing considerably better. Just before we recorded this episode, Running Up That Hill not only re-debuted on the Hot 100 all the way up at number 8, this week it leaps to number 4. At age 63, Kate Bush has her first ever American Top 10 hit, Top 5 even. So, what changed in those 37 years? 
Did Bush's American audience grow? Surely. Did the song become more resonant to younger generations? Probably. But the main thing that catalyzed this comeback was the screen that's flickering in your living room or den. Television. And TV has been making songs hits for a long time. There were pop stars made bigger by TV. Keep saying you love me And they'll look upon A teenager's romance Pop stars literally made by TV. Take the last train to Foxville I'll be waiting at the station And pop songs expressly written for television. Eventually, TV went a step further, resurrecting songs that had failed the first time and making them into second-chance smashes. Because when a song fuses with characters we let into our homes each week, that song starts to seem like a family friend, too. And in the 21st century, music licensing to TV has become big business. It's the way some artists break wide open. A well-placed song on a hit show could make a career. If I lay here, if I just lay here. Or turn an oldie into a new classic. Today on Hit Parade, we will travel through the tube for a brief history of not just cool songs, but hit songs fueled by TV exposure. From The Ventures, to Vonda Shepard. Chart history is filled with examples of songs made bigger through TV exposure. But the song we led off this episode with was part of a particularly pivotal moment in 1985. It wasn't a TV theme then. But funnily enough, the very week Kate Bush cracked the American Top 40 for the first time, the song and the album at number one were the backdrop to a hit TV show, one where the music defined the action. And that's where your hit parade marches today. The week ending November 9th, 1985, when Miami Vice Theme by Jan Hammer hit number one on the Hot 100, while the Miami Vice soundtrack was number one on the album chart. And that same week, 
cracking the top 40 at number 39, was Kate Bush's future hit from TV's Stranger Things, Running Up That Hill. How did we get from Jan Hammer's 80s-defining TV theme to a time when TV showrunners became musical cool hunters? Little did Kate Bush know it in the fall of 85, but she would one day strike a bargain with the boob tube, a compact in cathode rays. Let's just call it a deal with the TV god. Ever think those fables and fairy tales from back in the day are just a little bit dusty? Wondery and Tinkercast are bringing you a new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Join host DJ Fuchs and his trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as they deliver remixes of fables and folktales, rhythm and rhymes, and fun spins on classics as old as time. Grab the whole family and get ready to groove because they're putting the rap in Rapunzel and getting down with that funky duckling. Where hip-hop and fables meet, it's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to all episodes of Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Now, yesterday and today, our theater's been jammed with newspapermen and hundreds of photographers from all over the nation, and these veterans agree with me that the city never has witnessed the excitement stirred by these youngsters from Liverpool who call themselves the Beatles. Now, tonight, you're going to twice be entertained by them. Right now, and again in the second half of our show, ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles! I'm sure you're familiar with this, probably the most famous musical moment in TV history. Without question, the Beatles' February 9th, 1964 appearance on The Ed Sullivan Show, watched by a then-record 73 million Americans, more than a third of the country, fueled Beatlemania in the U.S. and sealed the Fab Four's popularity here for all time. However... As we noted in our Fab Four Sweep edition of Hit Parade, the Beatles arrived in New York for The Sullivan Show already in possession of a U.S. number one song. I Want to Hold Your Hand was in its third week atop the Hot 100 when they performed it live on the telly. Given the data lag on Billboard's charts, it had really been number one for about a month. 
surely the Sullivan appearance helped accelerate the song's popularity. Maybe I Want to Hold Your Hand wouldn't have spent seven weeks on top without it, though that is debatable. The Beatles went on to dominate the charts for the next three months. We'll never know. Now, let's flash ahead a little over three years when the Beatles recorded this. All You Need Is Love only existed because of television. It was written by John Lennon and performed by the Beatles live in a studio backed by a small orchestra for the first ever global live televised satellite broadcast, Our World, watched by some 600 million people worldwide. By 1967, the Beatles were savvy enough about television as a catalyst for hit-making that they used TV to create and market a hit song. All You Need Is Love topped the Hot 100 about eight weeks after that live satellite TV performance. The distinction between I Want to Hold Your Hand and All You Need Is Love, how each hit used television, is at the heart of this Hit Parade episode. I'm focusing on songs that are in some way intrinsic to television, or whose hit status can be largely attributed to the tube. TV's musical impact comes in many forms. There's the TV theme a staple of the medium, virtually since inception. And many of these songs are so culturally omnipresent, they feel like hits. It's the story of a man named Brady who was busy with three boys of his own. Here, for example, is the theme song to the late 60s, early 70s ABC sitcom The Brady Bunch. If you're of a certain age, or you've digested the show through its decades of syndicated reruns, you can probably sing every word. But as culturally omnipresent as it was, the Brady Bunch theme was never a hit song you would hear on the radio. By the way, in its first season, this theme song was credited to an actual studio band, the Peppermint Trolley Company, but they never issued it as a recording, and by season two, the theme had been re-recorded by the Brady Bunch kid actors. That kiddie version is the one I just played. The Brady Bunch theme is a widely renowned song. How could it not be, given its exposure to tens of millions of TV viewers week after week? But it wasn't a standalone hit song. Now, here's another popular theme song from a couple of decades later. 
Rembrandt's theme to TV's Friends, I'll Be There For You, was fueled by the smash NBC show, but also had a life beyond it. As we've discussed on prior Hit Parade episodes, the Rembrandts recorded a version that was long enough to stand on its own as a radio single. And that version topped Billboard's radio songs chart for eight weeks in the summer of 1995. It was a real-world hit outside the confines of the boob tube. This is the distinction I'm looking to make. Even beyond their theme music, TV shows have turned songs into cultural touchstones, or put them back into circulation, like, say, this ditty. If you're a baby boomer who remembers the pop hits of the early 70s, you'll know that as the 1974 Hot 100 number one smash Hooked on a Feeling by Blue Swede. If, however, you're a Gen Xer or perhaps an older millennial who recalls late 90s television, in your head right now, you're thinking, that's the dancing baby song from Ally McBeal. Indeed, during a 1998 episode of that Fox TV show, the Ally McBeal character hears the Blue Swede song playing every time she imagines a computer-generated baby, a hit meme from World Wide Web version 1.0, doing a little shimmy to invoke Ally's ticking biological clock. But neither Ally McBeal nor the late 90s web meme put Blue Swede's Hooked on a Feeling back on the charts. Hooked on a Feeling on Ally McBeal was a cultural moment, certainly, but it didn't lead to a revived hit song. So, as I'm walking through this episode, I'm sure many of you will be thinking of your own favorite TV musical moments— whether that's something as kitschy as the Doobie Brothers in 1978 on the ABC sitcom What's Happening, as Raj would say, which Doobie you be? Or something as hip and cool as the 2005 finale of HBO's Six Feet Under which made brilliant use of Australian singer Sia's song, Breathe Me. Song synchronizations like these, or syncs in the parlance of Hollywood, certainly help these musicians' careers. Placing a song in a hit TV show makes a rising artist that much more culturally relevant. But when a song breaks free of the few million people who catch it on TV and spreads to the millions more who hear hit songs on the radio, buy them in record stores, or, nowadays, consume them on digital services, that's a whole different level of impact. The song may have been catalyzed by its TV placement, but it becomes a standalone hit in its own right. That, after all, is what just happened with Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill. It didn't hurt me. Yeah, yeah. Do you want to feel? 
which, again, was single-handedly made a top-five hit by TV's Stranger Things. This instantly ranks it as one of the biggest TV-spawned hits of all time. You could argue that Bush's seemingly improbable, now-inevitable 2022 hit is the byproduct of decades of evolution in how TV makes hits. I'll be focusing in this episode on the times when TV directly affected a song's chart trajectory. And there are plenty of those. They date back almost to the beginning of TV as a popular medium and the early days of the Billboard charts. And killed Tim Mabar when he was only three. Davey, Davey Crockett, the king of the wild frontier. Music historians call 1955 the start of the so-called rock era. But months before Bill Haley's Rock Around the Clock went to number one, Billboard's pop charts sounded more like this. Bill Hayes' theme from the five-part Disneyland TV miniseries Davy Crockett. The song was written for the TV series, and while Bill Hayes' version was not the one heard on the tube, the televised version was by vocal group The Wellingtons, Hayes' quickly recorded cover capitalized on the Davy Crockett craze in late 1954 and 55. He went off to Congress and served a spell, fixing up the government laws as well. The Ballad of Davy Crockett was released near the dawn of television itself. TVs were in just two-thirds of American homes by 55. And it is the earliest chart-topping example of a show's titular theme song made into an actual hit. But here's another archetype, also from 1955. I owe my soul to the company Tennessee Ernie Ford was a five-day-a-week TV personality on NBC's daytime schedule, as well as a recording artist. He first performed 16 Tons, a 1947 country song by Merle Travis, on his TV show, and only thought to record it when his label, Capitol Records, insisted they needed another single. Thanks to its exposure on the tube, 16 Tons sold a million copies in just three weeks, the fastest-selling single of the recording industry to date. In the world of 1955, the line, another day older and deeper in debt, basically became a meme. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and both Davy Crockett and 16 Tons proved to the music biz in the early days of TV that the medium was a great way to sell pop songs. It was also a good way to launch a pop act. Ricky Nelson, you might say, represented a third TV music archetype after the theme song and the TV-exposed single. Ricky's entire music career 
probably wouldn't have happened if not for his exposure on the ABC TV series The Adventures of Ozzy and Harriet. Ricky's launch as a teen idol kicked off on the show, complete with swooning teenagers. Writes Fred Bronson in the Billboard book of number one hits, quote, after Ricky's first hit, a cover of Fats Domino's I'm Walking, no one would ever underestimate the power of television again, unquote. Nelson's stilted cover of the Domino classic reached number four on Billboard's bestsellers chart, matching the Domino original's peak on the magazine's radio chart. After I'm Walkin', Nelson became one of the top artists on the charts for the rest of the 50s. So, TV could sell singles by the truckload. Could it sell albums? Oh my yes. Consider Henry Mancini's soundtrack to the TV detective show Peter Gunn. Album, underestimated by RCA Records, which only printed 8,000 copies at first, wondering who would want to buy an LP of instrumental TV music, went on to top Billboard's best-selling LPs for 10 weeks in 1959. This was yet another TV to Pop Charts model, the hit instrumental theme, distinct from the ballad of Davy Crockett, which was more of an explanatory signature song. By the 60s, TV was well-established, and so were the models for spawning hit songs via the tube. There was the TV idol, a la Ricky Nelson. For example, teen actress Shelley Fabre turned her stardom on The Donna Reed Show into a showcase for her single, Johnny Angel which hit number one in 1962. On the other end of the age spectrum, Bonanza star Lorne Green took his spoken word Western outlaw story song Ringo to number one in 1964, while that NBC TV series he fronted was still number one in the ratings. But a spark still burns, so I used my knife, and late that night I saved the life of Ringo. Yes, TV could even turn this 49-year-old into a chart topper, though in 64, one imagines anything titled Ringo would do well on the Hot 100. Ringo was Bonanza-adjacent content, but it wasn't a theme song. Those were a harder sell on the charts. TV was going through its period of the plot explainer theme. Years before The Brady Bunch, Themes like, say, Gilligan's Island were trying to summarize everything you needed to know about a show in about a minute. My passenger set sail that day for a three-hour tour, a three-hour tour. 
these explanatory theme songs, Gilligan's Island, The Beverly Hillbillies, Green Acres, were not chart hits. Neither, by the way, decades later, was the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air theme. The trick with a theme song, if you wanted it to succeed on the radio, was giving it a personality not reliant on the show. So, for example, Johnny Rivers' theme for CBS's American broadcast of the British import Danger Man was titled Secret Agent Man. That song functioned as a standalone pop hit apart from the show, and it reached number three on the Hot 100 in 1966. Or Lalo Schifrin's classic theme for the CBS espionage show Mission Impossible which sounded cool even away from the two. Unlike Henry Mancini's theme from Peter Gunn, which sold truckloads of albums but didn't chart as a single, Schifrin's banger of a theme actually cracked the Hot 100, just missing the top 40 at number 41 in 1968. Part of the issue with chart performance was that the TV and music industries had different priorities. A theme as catchy as CBS's Hawaii Five O, performed by composer Morton Stevens. was designed to burst out of the confines of a TV speaker over a show's credits. But when established surf rock group The Ventures got a hold of the Hawaii Five-O theme, they improved the sonics, extended the melody, and turned it into a legitimate pop hit. The Ventures Hawaii Five-0 reached number four in 1969. It grooved like a late 60s rock smash, but benefited from the TV show's top 20 ratings. Indeed, TV's megaphone was so big, it could make a song a hit accidentally. In 1968, Tijuana Brass band leader Herb Alpert recorded a love song for a TV special. Featured during a short romantic vignette of Alpert with his wife on a Malibu beach, the recording, This Guy's In Love With You, written by legendary songwriters Burt Bacharach and Hal David, was meant as a one-off. Alpert, a trumpet player, had never sung before. You see this guy, this guy's in love with But the day after the special aired, CBS was flooded with calls from viewers clamoring for Alpert's love song to his wife. This Guy's In Love With You went on to top the Hot 100 in June 1968. 
Ironically, the vocal track was Instrumentalist Albert's first ever number one hit. It wouldn't be his last. Hold on to Herb Albert's name, because TV would give him another hit a decade later. Albert's hit reinforced a key element of TV musical success. Context mattered. This Guy's In Love With You wasn't just a hit because the great Bacharach and David wrote it. It was a hit because viewers associated it with something they loved on their TV screens. No act would benefit more from TV in the 60s and doe-eyed viewers' sense of televised contextual romance than the pop group that was literally invented to front a TV show. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here we come, walking down the street. We get the funniest works everyone we meet. The Monkees were TV's ultimate prefab musical creation, manufactured by TV executives to capitalize on the Beatles' success. The four Monkees, Mickey Dolenz, Davy Jones, Mike Nesmith, and Peter Tork, in real life actually outcharted the group that inspired them. Unlike the Beatles, who took over a year to break on the Billboard charts, the Monkees, introduced from the jump in millions of American living rooms, scored an instant 1966 number one hit with Last Train to Clarksville. Take the last train to Clarksville, I'll be waiting at the station. And in 1967, the year of Sgt. Pepper and the Summer of Love, the group with the most weeks at number one on the album chart was not the Beatles. It was the Monkees. The year's top seller was the album More of the Monkees, the group's second LP, featuring real-world chart-conquering hits like I'm a Believer and their cover of Paul Revere and the Raiders' I'm Not Your Stepping Stone. Stone. 
fans and critics are still debating today the legacy of the Monkees, who became a legitimate group in their own right and wrested control of their recordings away from their TV creators. Die-hard Monkees fans are still protesting the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame for not inducting them. In any case, the template for a TV-spawned band proved durable and was replicated in 1969 with a number one hit for the animated Archies. And in 1970, with a chart topper for another live action TV combo, The Partridge Family. The 70s was the decade of the variety show, giving performers yet another platform to promote hits. The husband and wife team of Sonny Bono and Cher, hitmakers of the 60s, launched their Sonny and Cher comedy hour in the summer of 71, just as Cher was pivoting to her solo career. She'd never had a solo number one hit before the TV show. But after performing Gypsies, Tramps, and Thieves live on the show, the song soared to number one in November 1971. What really took off in the 70s was the TV theme song, which finally got really polished popularized by the tube, but able to stand on its own as a radio hit. There were instrumentals that picked up where Hawaii Five-O left off, adding muscle to ditties that were already so catchy to begin with, you wanted them to last beyond a minute. For example, in 1974, MFSB, the studio group associated with Philadelphia International Records and the Philly Soul Sound of producers Kenny Gamble and Leon Huff recorded the theme to the premier black music show Soul Train. They called it TSOP for The Sound of Philadelphia. And it topped the Hot 100 in April of 74. It was the first TV theme to hit number one on the Hot 100 and, depending on how you regard the limited series story song from Davy Crockett, maybe the first such number one hit ever. Two years later, the theme from the short-lived crime drama Swapped was issued as a single by the studio group Rhythm Heritage. The funk group's wah-wah-tastic version of Theme from SWAT hit number one in February 1976. That same year, the composer of Theme from SWAT, Barry Dvorzon, scored another TV-affiliated hit when his composition, Cotton's Dream, 
the long-running theme to the CBS soap opera The Young and the Restless, was adopted by star 1976 Summer Olympics gymnast Nadia Comaneci. Renamed Nadia's Theme, the instrumental cracked the top 10 in the fall of 76, peaking at number 8. It is still the theme to The Young and the Restless today. for TV themes with vocals, those were doing better on the charts as well. TV producers got the hint that themes with words could prolong the life of a show if the lyrics weren't too plotty and the song could stand apart. Big hits included the theme to Welcome Back, Cotter, John Sebastian's Welcome Back, a number one hit in 1976. Welcome back. Your dreams were your ticket out. Welcome back to that same old place that you laughed about. Or the 50s kitsch theme to Happy Days, performed by pop duo Pratt and McLean, a 1976 number five hit. And the theme to Happy Days spin-off, Laverne and Shirley, performed by Cindy Greco and taken to number 25 in 76. Both theme songs, Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley's, rode the top 40 at the same time. In the 70s and early 80s, a show didn't even have to be a ratings hit for its theme song to connect. Actor and one-hit wonder David Naughton took the 1979 theme to ABC's disco-fied show Making It to number five, even as the show lasted only two months. Making It, the song, peaked on the charts months after Making It, the show, was off the air. Speaking of disco, Saturday Night Fever co-star Donna Pescow got her own TV show in 79, Angie. And its theme by Maureen McGovern, Different Worlds, reached number 18 on the pop chart and number one on the adult contemporary chart. Angie lasted two seasons. And in 1981, the reluctant superhero comedy The Greatest American Hero lasted for three abbreviated and ratings-challenged seasons on ABC. But its theme song by Joey Scarborough, Believe It or Not, a number two hit in August of 81, lives on in the annals of beloved Yacht Rock-era hits. Mind you, if the show was a hit, so much the better. 
on the countryside, the Waylon Jennings theme to The Dukes of Hazard, a TV ratings monster at the turn of the 80s, topped the country chart in 1980 and even crossed over to the Hot 100. But the most interesting category of TV spawned hit, one that eventually leads to Kate Bush's unlikely 2022 comeback, is the song that is unaffiliated with TV that is then resurrected by a hit TV show. These only started to emerge at the dawn of the 80s, when Hollywood music supervisors gained the clout to search farther afield for songs that could motivate a plot. And one show, another daytime soap opera that was once even more popular than The Young and the Restless, deserves a sidebar all its own. General Hospital, TV's top-rated soap from 1979 to 1988, was a song-reviving jukebox. Driving the show was a long-running romantic plot between the characters Luke Spencer, played by Anthony Geary, and Laura Spencer, Jeannie Francis. And the monumentally popular Luke and Laura spawned two, count em, two Hot 100 topping hits. In 79, a controversial rape plot between Luke and Laura brought life to a smooth disco instrumental by Herb Alpert. Remember him? Rise was intended to be Alpert's comeback single after a mostly hitless 70s, but it was performing poorly on the Hot 100 before General Hospital's music supervisor Jill Phelps chose the song to soundtrack the Luke and Laura rape plot. Rise took off, rising to number one in October 1979. Three years later, music supervisor Phelps struck again when she needed a song for another Luke-related plot after Laura was written out of the show and Luke was paired with a new lover. This time, Phelps chose a failed 1981 single by Patty Austin, a duet she did with James Ingram called Baby Come To Me. General Hospital single-handedly brought that song back to the Hot 100 more than a year after it peaked, and it eventually reached number one in February 1983. Just FYI, General Hospital was so popular at this time that actors from the show also became pop stars after their exposure on the soap. There's that Ricky Nelson archetype again. 
However, neither Rick Springfield, who played Dr. Noah Drake, nor Jack Wagner, who played Frisco Jones. played their big hits in character on the soap at the peak of their careers. Nonetheless, their careers were significantly boosted by General Hospital. The General Hospital model of recontextualized hits would be supercharged in prime time by NBC's Miami Vice, a 1984 show whose apocryphal origin story involved NBC President Brandon Tartikoff scribbling in a notepad just the phrase MTV Cops. on MTV, Miami Vice's music sequences were highly stylized and impressionistic, as when, for example, Don Johnson's Sonny Crockett and Philip Michael Thomas's Rico Tubbs drove menacingly through the nighttime to Phil Collins' 1981 hit, In the Air Tonight. That Miami Vice exposure would bring Collins' hit back to rock station playlists three years after it had peaked on the charts. Miami Vice also rebooted the career of former Eagle Glenn Fry, whose 84 B-side Smuggler's Blues became the plot for a whole Vice episode turning the song into an A-side and sending it back on the charts all the way to number 12. Fry even acted in the episode. It's the nature of the business, it's the smuggler's blues. Glenn Fry then recorded a brand new song, You Belong to the City, for the premiere of Vice's second season in the fall of 85. Not since Peter Gunn had a TV show made such an impression on the Billboard charts. The soundtrack to Miami Vice hit number one on the album chart the same month Glenn Fry reached number two on the Hot 100, and the aforementioned Miami Vice theme by Jan Hammer reached number one. The Miami Vice soundtrack spent a whopping 11 weeks at number one on the album chart, still the longest any TV soundtrack has spent on top of that chart. It affirmed the primacy of the music supervisor in helping to make or break a TV series. As impressive as all this was, Miami Vice proved hard to replicate. And you might say it didn't represent the future of TV music placement. 
arguably a resurrected hit one year later, one even unlikelier than the hits spawned by General Hospital, would create the template for what we might now call the Stranger Things approach. This song wasn't sleek, it wasn't sex-charged or cutting-edge, but in its quiet way, this number one hit would change the game. What did you think I would say at this moment When I'm faced with the knowledge That you just don't love me When we come back, Family Ties, yes, the Michael J. Fox family sitcom, plays Kingmaker on the charts. Non-Slate Plus listeners will hear the rest of this episode in two weeks. For now, I hope you've been enjoying this episode of Hit Parade. Our show was written, edited, and narrated by Chris Malanfi. That's me. My producer is Kevin Bendis. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer and Derek John, the supervising narrative producer of Slate Podcasts. Check out their roster of shows at slate.com slash podcasts. You can subscribe to Hit Parade wherever you get your podcasts, in addition to finding it in the Slate Culture feed. If you're subscribing on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us while you're there. It helps other listeners find the show. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to leading the Hit Parade back your way. We'll see you for part two in a couple of weeks. Until then, keep on marching on the one. I'm Chris Malampe. Kiss the ground that you walk on If I could just hold you again Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.